0: Hi folks, welcome to another installment of the World's Nation podcast. Earlier this year in the build-up to the 75th D-Day anniversary commemorations, we journeyed to Colchester to sit down and chat with 6th Airborne Division historian and author, Neil Barber, to discuss the important role this airborne unit played on D-Day and during the fierce fighting in the subsequent 1944 Normandy campaign. Just a quick note, these episodes were not recorded in a studio, but actually inside an original C-47 Dakota, now used as a gate guard at Colchester. So as such, I apologise in advance for a few points for some of the background noise with the rain and the creaking in this 70-year-old aircraft, but uh, it was quite soon to be able to record it inside an original Dakota.
1: Tell us how you became involved with the 6th Airborne, Neil. It was really by an
2: accident. Um, my uncle, who got me really one of the main reasons I'm interested in the Second World War, he was in the Middlesex Regiment and fought right through the war. And he, as a kid, he even mentioned this place called the Chateau saint Com and how bad it was. And in 94, I took him out to Normandy. And because he was a vicar's machine gunner, we could track his precise positions. Anyway, although he wasn't at the Chateau, he took me there and explained a bit more. So I started doing a little bit of digging from after that. The following year, his carrier driver came out, Dennis Daly, and he was actually there and in the chateau while the fighting was going on, which was amazing to hear. So that really did make me want to learn more about what really went on in detail. So, of course, found out that Middlesex were really only there one night and a bit, little bit longer, um, and that really it was a 9th Parachute Battalion battle. So that started to leave me. To 9th Battalion veterans, uh, and although I was a bit reticent, I suppose, of um, bothering them, Dennis literally grabbed two of them in Ronville Cemetery and and brought them over to me, and really, it it came from there. Um, That was really what I was concentrating on. Just for my own benefit, I used to do things like that. Just I wanted to know more, Um, and it kind of snowballed. I was determined initially to stay away from Merville because at the time there seemed to be so much controversy about it and as you do think that so much has been written about the subject but the more of the veterans I spoke to um, the more information came out which hadn't been written about much to my amazement so in the end I did kind of extend it back to Merville Uh, plus of course you had to explain why the battalion was spread all over the place and why there were so few men um, at the Chateau Saint-Col. So that's really how I got involved um, with the Sixth Airborne because I was doing it over a good number of years. Just fell in love with that area, such a fascinating area to to track what went on where. Um, that of course led, if you're, if you're interested in the area, you um, can't fail to be interested in the Pegasus Bridge operation. And so again, I spent six months looking into it thinking, you know, it's been covered, I write another book, but it's that old thing I wanted to know more, and when I read what was about, it was really Stephen Ambrose's book, everything else was really regurgitated from his book, so then again, started interviewing all the veterans, um, spent five years going around interviewing, like I did with the Ninth. I spent five years going around interviewing all those. Although perhaps I was slightly too late with Pegasus, I did gain a lot more information and expanded it a bit more, obviously with the 7th Battalion Defence in Beneville, which had never really been seriously looked at or publicised. Um, And really it's
1: it's all come from that, from my uncle mentioning the chateau uh, since I was a kid. (laughs) And you mentioned there was a lot of controversy around Merville at the time, what was that about? Jefferson's book, Alan Jefferson's book,
2: obviously hadn't been out that long, maybe seven or eight years, if I remember rightly, when I got involved, so there was a lot of animosity uh, going on with that, because some people thought it was groundbreaking and other people didn't like it, but whatever you think of it, it's more information, isn't it? It's it's making you more aware of what went on, adding to the story. I don't know. Oh, when I spoke to Kerr Lockway, he hadn't read it. He refused to read it. Um, but obviously, of course, as a lot of people know he and Jefferson didn't get on. Uh, but these things happen.
1: So mm. um, give us, um, if you can, just give us a, um, a sort of a broad overview of the Sixth Airborne Divisional. Um, what, 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 they, what they had to do, what their uh, requirements, their tasks were on the night of sixth of June. Well, their overall task was to provide a defensive buffer
2: for the flank. The two most vulnerable positions for the forthcoming invasion uh, were the flanks, that's why airborne forces were put in at either end. Because if if armour went straight into the side rather than head on, you know, it's obviously more effective. Uh, So that that was their role overall, to be a buffer zone. To give the bridgehead enough time to build up before the breakout. Within that, they had uh, three primary tasks and um, the capture of obviously the canal bridge and the river bridge um, Beneville and Ronville. Uh, The silencing of the Merville battery which could fire on Sword Beach and could cause havoc if it did open fire. Four guns um, That could do four rounds a minute for an indefinite period really uh, and then the other one of course was the demolition of five bridges across the River Deves to the east, which was to in effect stop the German armour getting at the airborne zone. They'd have to come all the way around uh, because it was only positioned sort of east of Paris a little bit further north. So it made their journey longer and forced them really to go the other side of the river
1: into the main, where the main defences and the armour of the British would be, the Canadians. And you mentioned already the uh, the 9th and the 7th Parachute Battalions. Tell us uh, uh, more, first of all, in detail about the ninth. what they had to do. Well, the ninth, it was their job to silence the Merville battery. Um, they had a drop
2: zone at Varaville, which is about a mile and a half to the east. Um, there was quite an involved plan, which a lot of people criticise. But, and Colonel Lockway takes a lot of uh, stick for that plan. But that plan had evolved for months and months before, you know, before, well before Christmas '43, um, So it wasn't solely Colonel Lockway's plan. Martin Lindsay had been a big part of that. Uh, obviously, he added his little bits at the end with the gliders and that kind of thing. But the bottom line was he wanted to give his men as much chance of survival as possible. He knew it was a tough nut to crack. Um, and he wanted the men to have confidence that they were going to survive and also do the job. So that was their main task. After that they had the task of taking out a radar station a bit further east, um, and then going on to the village of Amphreville, and eventually taking up position on the Breville Ridge, which overlooked Pegasus Bridge and the whole area really. It was the dominating feature, uh, and one of the most important features,
1: perhaps in Normandy, it it, it was that important to the invasion. Let's talk a bit more, a bit more about the um, the plan that you mentioned there, um, Otway and Lindsay's plan. What, what what's your personal take um, on that plan? Do you think it was too complicated? Do you think it was just right? And and what do you make about um, how Otway uh, dealt with the situation on the night when he found out he needed a fraction of the men and the equipment that he needed?
2: Well, you know they talk about the plan, well, the plan was complicated, but. When you think they'd built the dummy battery ink pen, they'd gone in there and practiced it innumerable times. Every man knew his job, and they had confidence in that they could do it, real belief they could do it. When you've got that kind of confidence, it makes a big difference, rather than just um, just a head on attack, blind head on attack. Whether it needed to be that complicated, the only thing I thought maybe the gliders was a bit ambitious because um, you'll read some play, in some places that the glider pilots were told that they had to crash between the, the casemates and the casemates would take the wings off and slow them down and all this sort of thing but that's that's not true and um, confirm that with the glider pilots themselves but even so landing within that small area um, just before a battle Commences in the dark and would have been quite some feet, quite some feet. And then, of course, you've got the problem they would be facing their own men coming in, and as you know, they all had the skull and crossbones painted to identify them. But uh, how effective that would have been, it would have um, added a, a more chaotic feature to the plan, certainly. So, make it well, the way it turned out with. Obviously only one glider actually getting there, but the fortune of where that landed was absolutely right with, mm. with the patrol coming in uh, from the east. Very, very fortunate.
1: So why don't you tell us what happened there, just so, so we know. Well, the, um, the battalion suffered a very widespread drop
2: for various reasons. There'd been a bombing raid on the on the battery and there was a huge smoke cloud. Um, the ground... Um, the markers, Eureka Beacons, had been broken or hadn't been set up. Uh, there was a wind, all kinds of things. We came your flak, of course. Um, so by half past two, there were only 150 men that arrived at the RV. Um, Otway obviously waited a bit longer to see if any more came in. But eventually they moved off with 150. Um, and a very hasty plan was made with what they had, really. I mean, it's when you remember, each man and each company had a specific job, they had specific equipment, a routine, and all that went out the window. It was just, you, 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 you're doing this. I mean, obviously, B Company were blowing um, gaps in the wire and they would continue to do that. They had enough Bangalore torpedoes to do that. But the assault companies were decimated, really. C Company. Um, so, really, it was a very hastily put together
1: plan and really solely relied on the bravery of the men, that was it. What do you make of that plan, about these decisions on the ground? Um, well the first decision was not to give up,
2: which of course he didn't really have a choice as he said. Um, it had to be tried no matter how they got on, you know, they had to be tried even with 150 men and, and very little equipment. How many men were they supposed to have? Um, Over oh, 600. But um, So that that's the first main point. Um, when it came to the plan, they could do no well. Not, not a lot else, really. I mean, Major Smith and um, Dusty Miller had done a recce of the battery and given him that information. Paul Greenway and some of his men and miller had gone back and cleared paths through the minefield so it was restricted in that way um, probably you know, obviously they didn't have any mine detectors it was all done by hand so again that part of the plan methodical part of the plan where you'd have mine free lanes was gone uh, and although they would have had to, a path or a track to follow kind of thing. That would only be to a certain point and then it would mean running through a minefield anyway. But there was a lot of just sheer bravery. Just sheer bravery on the on the part of the men. I don't know what else you could have you could have done. Obviously the gliders couldn't get in because they didn't have any mortars to fire the illuminating shells for the to light like the place up. Um, I don't know what else you could have done, really, with the men available.
1: Just to go back to the gliders, um, can you explain, uh, you you mentioned it was very fortuitous, um, where the the glider that landed closer to the battery, where it landed, was was very important. Can you explain a bit about uh, about, about what that is?
2: Well, only two of the three gliders actually arrived over the battery. The third one, its tow rope had broke just as it was going across the channel. Functionally it turned back. Um, the first one to arrive, obviously couldn't see the battery, circled round a few times getting hit and then um, the pilot thought he saw the battery and it was actually gone Realised this and shot off. And We actually found it a little while ago, didn't we? A couple of years ago where the glider actually landed about a mile as a crow flies from the battery. Uh, the next one that came in Again, didn't really see the battery, saw it at the last minute, was too high and ended up flying straight across, in effect number one case mate, and then across the road and sort of turned right into a field where it hit some trees, you use the arrest parachute, hit some trees and then came to rest in a field in a, beside a lane which led up from Gonneville towards the battery, um, what, 500 yards away? The men got out of there before they could go up towards the battery. They heard Germans coming up the lane, and that's where uh, the firefight started. Actually, stopped these Germans coming up from behind. So that was very, very fortunate.
1: So those Germans were going to reinforce the garrison at the at the battery.
2: Yes, and when, you know when they arrived there, the attack had already gone in. Mm. To, uh, to have Germans behind you in that position would have been
1: uh, would have been curtains, really, mm. for, the, for the battalion. And so that glider um, that landed closest to the batteries, say so 500 yards away, Fred Glover was uh, on that that glider, wasn't he? That's right, yeah. yeah. He was wounded. There was flak coming through the
2: floor, and he felt the, the flak come through and went through his legs. Um, he eventually got out. Um, but when the battalion had moved on, he tried to keep up with them but couldn't. Um, so he was left with a couple of German wounded, Fortunately, as it turned out for him, there was was one who was very badly wounded and he gave him his morphine and later on uh, some SS troops actually found them lying there and uh, when they were searching Fred they found uh, his fighting knife which didn't um, please them too much and then he had a gammon bomb and he'd actually put some bullets in his gammon bomb to make it more lethal. And they didn't like that at all, and Fred always thought they were going to shoot him over this. But when one of the other German pointed out that he'd given, Fred had given this other German his thing, they, they relented. And uh, yeah, he, had, he went on to have quite a time in Paris with the uh, resistance after getting out of hospital.
1: You mentioned one glider, the tow rope broke over the channel and they turned back to England. The other glider that landed about a mile away, that was the glider that Gordon Newton was on. That right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, initially, Gordon was at the back of the glider and um,
2: the pilot told him to sit there because Gordon had a flamethrower. He was wearing a flamethrower. And um, Gordon wasn't very happy about this. Uh, so he came forward and sat um, quite near the door. Um, and then Flack started to come, come up and he actually shifted over to other side. I mean, the minute he did that, piece of flap came through the floor and out of the roof, just where he'd been. But that glider ended up landing in a bit of a flooded field, so about a mile away. Uh, the tail came off. They got into the into the water, which wasn't that deep. Um, but uh, Gold managed to get rid of his glide. He's a flamethrower. There, he didn't he didn't want that anyway. And they headed towards the battery. And um, that him up with. They caught up with Fred a little bit later, but obviously, it couldn't take him. Uh, and that group went on to the menal Crossroads. But, um, you know, this aerial photograph is, is quite a sight because you, Gordon
1: always said the towel came off, and you could clearly see in the aerial photograph that the towel separate. So, quite a moment for Gordon to uh, finally know the spot where his glider landed. It was,
2: yeah, it was wonderful for all the years he'd been going uh, he'd, he'd always wondered where it was and it was great for him to, to actually find out what
1: yeah, perfect for him to find out before he passed away yes tell us a bit about um, the day the devil's dropped in your book on the ninth parachute battalion um, well it covers that first week of the ninth battalion's
2: uh, actions in Normandy as I, as I said really. It, it wasn't meant to be a book. It was just something for my own benefit. I'd, I'd always done things like that. I'd spent what nearly ten years out on the Somme, just doing my research, going out, following people, being on the spot, where and just taking it in, you know, wanting to know more. So I suppose that was my apprenticeship, really. Uh, that's where I got my love of the detail, and um, yeah, they were happy times. Happy times, and. So I just, I had that urge to want to know more. As I say, you always think when, you know, so much has been written about these incidents or whatever, and it's quite an eye-opener when you, you, put, I don't know, you, you put these people, like writers, on a pedestal, and that's the be-all and end-all. And it's only when you go through the process and do things yourself that you find out that perhaps things are not that way. And there is a lot more information out there. I mean, it always, it always shocked me how few of the people that I've interviewed had ever been spoken to before. I just couldn't believe it. Um, but it was great. It was absolutely fascinating to, And addictive. addictive, um, Because you'd find out about certain incidents and then you might think, well, there's no way I'm ever going to find out any more about that and then you'd speak to someone else and the door would open and you'd know you'd find more in. And that feeling is is fantastic, you know, to, to unlock you know, information which what well, could well have been lost. So there is, um, I'll tell it to anyone contemplating writing a book, don't be daunted by it because there's nothing to be daunted about. If you put the effort in and the research, then um, you'll succeed. But anyway, um, yeah, so I spent five years going around the country from Scotland to the West Country interviewing the 9th Battalion veterans, wherever they were. Not just that, because you're always looking for corroborating evidence or information. Um, That's why I got involved with the commandos Paris, three Paris Squadron engineers, anyone who was in that area at the time can add a picture or corroborate other evidence. Fact, it was. It got wider and wider. Um, and after five years, I've been probably wondering what I was up to. I thought, I've got to, I've got to draw a line somewhere. That's, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, so book-wide, that was it. That's how the book came out. But... Um, I've never let that line be the be or an end Or you know, there's, there's more people come forward that we didn't know about at the time, um, there's always a new sort of bits and pieces that,
1: um, you know, become available, or, so it's, um, hopefully I'll update it one day. I think it's fair to say that your books are probably the most detailed available. Um, on the subject matter. Is that something that was very important to you, to make sure that the details were, or or that the books were as detailed as as possible? Yeah, yeah. um, I I knew what I wanted.
2: I knew what I wanted because, obviously I've read such books since I was a kid, and I knew what was different. And I also wanted it to have some sort of permanence, not a memorial to them, but, you know, I wanted people, I wanted their faces in the book as a record of them. Because you, you can read all these stories, and they're very, very interesting, but unless you, you can see who they were, it's not quite the same. And now they're in print, and that's great. They're, that's then kind of immortalised. And I like that. I like, mm-hmm. It was something I liked from the um, Powell's books, from going back in the, in the 80s. That was really something, I wanted something like that, and I knew there wasn't anything like that in the Second World War. And that's why I went to Pen and Sword Funny enough. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword really, because I've got a lot, lots of other interests in the war, but when you become that involved or kind of addicted to it, it's going to be to the detriment of everything else. And that's, let's that's, say, it's a double-edged sword. Um, everything else has suffered from our knowledge wise, but um, can't have your cake and eat it.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. We do hope you found it of interest. Parts two and three will be out shortly. In these, we'll be discussing the 7th Parachute Battalion's role around Beneville and the ports in holding Pegasus and Horses bridges on D Day. Jeff Howard's experiences with the 1st and 7th Middlesex Battalion, the Commando's important role and the experiences of Stan Scott with Number 3 Commando, as well as learning a bit about Neil's current work looking at the blowing of the five bridges around the river dives and Divet. So stay tuned for that, that'll be out shortly. And special thanks to all those for help making this possible. Neil, Barber, Robin Savage, and the Airborne Assault Museum team, John and Sam. And obviously the Colchester Barracks for letting us film and record this inside a C-47 Dakota. And of course you for listening. So thank you very much and we will see you soon.